Warm welcome to our time of worship. Uh, Tim, was, Tim was encouraging us this morning from Deuteronomy uh, to enjoy the wonder uh, of what God has done for us. Uh, and we get to do that as we look at the cross this evening, the cross of Christ 
and all that he has achieved for us. And as I've been praying uh, about this evening's service, my prayer is that we would be really in wonder that God would do all of this for us, to achieve the salvation uh, for, us, for us so that we could be in his kingdom. It's truly wonderful, isn't it? Uh, 1 John chapter 2 uh, and verses uh, 1 and 2 says this. If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we're going to worship God tonight because he is our saviour. He is the one who has paid the price for our sins. And that's our first song this evening, The Price is Paid.
us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that the price of our sins was paid in full at the cross. We pray that you would keep this amazing truth at the forefront of our minds day by day. As we heard this morning, help us to enjoy the wonder that you, the almighty God, would send your own son as a substitute for us to save us from our sins. We pray that the wonder of that would not be lost on your people, even as they go through difficult times. We pray for those in our church who are sick, who are in pain, who are undergoing treatment, even those, Heavenly Father, who are dying. We pray that they would still be wandering at the cross and remembering that because the price is paid, our future is secure. We have a place in your kingdom. We are accepted by you forever. We thank you, Lord, that we have amazing hope in the gospel. We pray also for the children in our church, that they also would wonder at your love for them. For those who have heard the gospel since they were uh, small children, I pray that it would still be fresh for them, that it wouldn't get old and stale, but they would continue to wonder at what you have done for them. We give thanks uh, especially today uh, for the safe arrival of Rosanna Pickett. And we pray for her physical health, that she would grow healthy and strong. And we pray for Tom and Beth and Phoebe, that they would adjust well to a new member of the household. We pray that this would be a most wonderful and joyful time for them. But we pray most of all that both of these little girls would know that the price has been paid for their sin, that they too would put their trust in Jesus Christ. And we ask this for all of the children in our Sunday school. We pray that the truth they hear week by week about what you have done for them would really penetrate their hearts. We pray that from this church, we would see children and young people grow up that would love you and serve you and tell others of the amazing gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ has died for our sins. And so help us tonight, Lord, to be amazed, to be in wonder at what Christ has achieved for us on the cross that we would love you more and serve you faithfully for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, as we look at Jesus on the cross in the gospel accounts, uh, we see uh, that there are two psalms in particular uh, that foreshadow what is going on. One of them we read a couple of weeks ago, which was Psalm 69, uh, and this week, we're going to have our reading from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is uh, a psalm which speaks echoes of the cross. So if you would turn there in your Bibles, uh, Pete is going to come and read uh, Psalm 22 for us. Psalm 22, to the chief musician, 
set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, they trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb you made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shared, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard him. My praise be of you, shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this.
And our next song speaks of the story of the cross. Uh, We sang this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, The song's called Jerusalem. Uh, Let's hear these words and glory in the cross together.
But if you turn uh, in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 27, and this evening we're going to look at verses 45 down to verse 54. Uh, So last time uh, we were uh, together in Matthew's gospel, we saw uh, Jesus nailed to the cross uh, by the soldiers Uh, And Matthew uh, was showing us that the mockery uh, of those around Jesus uh, was teaching us the truth about Jesus and what he came to do. Uh, And Matthew tonight continues to show us the meaning of the cross now, not through the voice of the mockery, but actually with the voice of the creation. So that's what's going on. Uh, from verse 45 to 54. So let's read uh, this together. This is God's word. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. This is God's word. Uh, When you uh, watch a film or or read a novel, uh, a a storyteller will often use a technique called pathetic fallacy. Now, you may not have heard of that phrase, but you'll know what it means when I explain it, because whenever something in a film happens, for example, that is sad, the storyteller will use the surroundings to make it known that this is a sad scene. So the best example of it is where it's raining when it's really sad. Or if you know Winnie the Pooh and you have Eeyore, he's always walking around with what over him? A rain cloud. The storyteller is telling us something about Eeyore because it's giving the rain cloud an emotion that sets the tone of the scene. That's exactly the kind of thing that is going on in this passage. The natural world, the creation, is giving explanation 
as to what is going on as Jesus dies on the cross. God uses his creation to commentate on what is happening. And so I've entitled the message, Creation's Commentary on the Cross of Christ. Because the supernatural darkness, the temple curtain being torn, and the earthquake that opens the tombs, all give explanation as to what Jesus is achieving as he dies on the cross. So the first supernatural occurrence is the darkness. And the darkness is telling us that on the cross, Jesus receives the judgment of God. Look again at verse 45. It says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Now this is very strange, isn't it? We should be reading this and thinking it's a bit odd that in the middle of the day, it becomes dark. It cannot possibly be a solar eclipse because the Passover, which is when this is taking place, is always during a full moon, and a solar eclipse can only happen at a new moon. The only explanation for this darkness in the middle of the day is that it's a supernatural phenomenon. This is something from God. God intervenes in history to use his creation to explain what is going on as Jesus is on the cross. And what's going on is judgment. In the Old Testament, darkness is used often to describe the judgment of God. A clear example of this is in, the, is in Egypt, in the book of Exodus, when the ninth plague was a plague of darkness. Uh, God was judging Egypt with darkness. And as uh, God spoke of judging Israel in the Old Testament, listen to what the prophet Amos says about this judgment. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Do you see the echoes right there of what is going on in these verses? And here the sun is going down at noon. The earth is darkened in broad daylight. There is morning during the Passover festival as God's only son is dying on the cross. The darkness signifies the judgment of God. And in verse 46, we see that it was the judgment of God that was being poured out on Jesus Christ. As the period of darkness and judgment is coming to an end, Jesus cries out in verse 46 in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've said previously that Psalm 22 is referred to a lot as Jesus dies on the cross. 
And here, Jesus uses the first words from that psalm to explain what is happening and how he is feeling as he receives the judgment of God upon himself. As Jesus dies on the cross, he is forsaken or abandoned by his Father. Now, there is some... Uh, mystery here there is, uh, about, about how this works exactly. There isn't a, a kind of a break in the Trinity. Uh, Jesus is still fully God here. But Jesus Christ, as he is dying on the cross in our place as a man, is forsaken by his Father and he feels the total abandonment that that entails. We have a fuller understanding of what is going on here as we read the rest of the New Testament. Uh, Paul the Apostle helps us to understand uh, what's going on. Uh, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, we read, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. So Jesus is dying as a sacrifice that makes us right with God. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So as Jesus is on the cross, the darkness is telling us he's facing God's judgment and that means he is being forsaken by his Father to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. And what we see happening here is that in paying for the sins of his people, Jesus had to literally suffer hell. The wrath of God being forsaken by God, which is the punishment for our sins that we deserve. He had no sin, He's doing this for us. At the baptism of Jesus, we see there the Father saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And now the Father is forsaking him, as in those three hours Jesus suffers the full punishment for all the sins of all God's people for all of time. And God, as he looks upon Jesus, he's treating Jesus as if he's not very pleased with him. And in that sense, he's not because Jesus is taking our place for our sins. As we look at the wrath of God here, it should give us a fresh perspective on the seriousness of our sin. Sin is not just uh, a bit of naughtiness, that's okay. It's not just a kind of boys will be boys kind of thing. It's not something that's just acceptable because, well, it's part of the human condition and everybody else does it. To understand how serious sin is, we need only look really at verses 45 and 46 of this passage. As Jesus, in the darkness of the judgment of God, suffers hell for us. 
We take sin far too lightly. We excuse it, we brush it off, we make it seem less than what it is. But look at what our sin does to Jesus Christ. Look at the result of our lying, of our sexual immorality, of our unkindness, of our laziness, or whatever else it is. Look at what it does to Jesus. And then you see what God thinks of those things. Look at what happens as he faces the judgment of God. Sin is a complete affront to God's holiness. It causes him to turn away from us as he does to Jesus here. If God just allowed it to to go and let it be unpunished, he would cease to be holy. But he doesn't allow sin to go unpunished. He shows us the punishment by showing us, uh, by taking it upon himself as he dies on the cross. And the seriousness of that sin is shown even further in verses 47 to 49. As Jesus dies on the cross and cries out in a loud voice, his words are mistaken. That when he calls out Eli, people think he's calling Elijah. The name Elijah means the Lord is my God. And Jesus cries out my God, which obviously sounds similar, uh, certainly in the Aramaic that he was crying out to what uh, to Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of God in the Old Testament. He was taken uh, to heaven without going through death. And many people at the time believed that Elijah's role was to come to the aid of God's people when they are in distress. And so the words of verse 46 were seen by those hearing them to be a cry for help in his distress. And in verse 48, someone seems to have compassion on Jesus and they put wine vinegar on a sponge and they offer it to Jesus to drink. Now, wine vinegar doesn't sound very nice, but it's not quite uh, what we might be thinking if we're thinking of the bottles of wine vinegar in the supermarket that we see. Uh, this was not the same, quite the same as that. Neither was it the same as the wine mixed with gall that the soldiers mockingly gave to Jesus. Rather, this was a a sour wine, a kind of cheap plonk that the common people would drink. And so it seems what's going on here is that in crying, someone hears Jesus, they think cry for help. And so they go and try and help him by giving him uh, some uh, sour wine to drink. But sour wine will not help Jesus as he faces the wrath of God. They leave the sponge there. And in verse 49, people say, well, just leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to help him. The wine's not going to help him. Let's see if Elijah will come. Now, of course, they probably have no expectation of Elijah coming at all. And neither should they. Because the point here is that Jesus is completely and utterly alone. Those that try to help can't help him. Those that might help, like Elijah, won't help him. 
Jesus is left completely alone and he's completely helpless. And that's where sin leaves us. The holiness of God is such that he cannot look upon sin. He he can't allow it into his presence. And so because of our sin, we are helpless and abandoned. But unlike Jesus, we do have someone to help us. Jesus, the helpless one, is the one that does help us in that greatest of needs that we have. For whilst on the cross, Jesus shows the holiness of God and the wrath of God, but he also shows us the great and mighty and amazing love of God, doesn't he? The love of God is demonstrated here in that the the death of Jesus is in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve. And so on the cross, we see holiness and love, wrath and mercy meeting together in one place on this cross. Well, in verse 50, we see Jesus die. Notice how Matthew and the other gospel writers, as the other gospel writers do, present the death of Jesus as voluntary. When people die of crucifixion, one of the effects is suffocation. And so crying out in any kind of voice was very unusual. But Jesus cries out in a loud voice, meaning he's in control. And then we read in verse 50, notice the words, he gave up his spirit. So the wording here implies that Jesus died on purpose, according to his time scale. It wasn't taken from him, he gave up his spirit. And so all of that suffering that we've read about, all of that darkness, Jesus did that voluntarily. And we read all through the Testament, the New Testament that the purpose behind this was the plan of the Godhead to save sinners because of the great love that God has for us. The death of Jesus was no accident. Your salvation is no accident. It is part of the plan and purpose of God because he loves you. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it amazing that God would do this for us? I mentioned earlier that we, I don't think we can quite realize the seriousness of our sin, but another mistake we can make is to be so familiar with the cross that we forget how amazing this love is. Paul prays in Ephesians that we may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. That means we need to be continually grasping it, trying to take hold of it. We're never going to plumb the depths of it, but we've got to keep going with it. Let me ask you, is your appreciation for what Christ has done grown cold? Look again at the cross. 
Look at what he's done here. Look at how he's doing this for you. Look at what love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. If your love has grown cold, look at the cross. Nothing spurs us on to holy living and to evangelism and so on than a fresh look at what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And what he has done and what the cross achieves is shown by even more supernatural events as he dies. At the moment Jesus dies, two more supernatural events occur which show us what the death of Christ has achieved. What it means that he's taken the judgment of God for us. So we've seen how the darkness shows that judgment But the supernatural events in the temple show us that Jesus provides access to God. Notice with me the beginning of verse 51. At that moment, so the moment Jesus dies, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So the temple was divided into different sections And access to different sections depended on uh, your nationality, your gender, uh, your position within the leadership uh, of the the religion. But the center of the temple was called the holiest place, the holy of holies. And it was here in this place that God was said to dwell. And there was a thick curtain that blocked the way to this place, as thick as the span of someone's hand, about nine centimeters thick. It was a a really thick curtain. It was a big no-entry sign. No one can come in here to access the presence of God because of sin. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, a high priest could go into this room And sprinkle the blood of a sacrificed bull onto the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins of the people. But only one man, once a year, having had a sacrifice for himself made, could go into that place. Access to God was denied, except if they are brought there through a sacrifice. And even then... They couldn't go in physically themselves. Someone had to go in there on their behalf. They were represented by the high priest. But God commentates on what the cross achieves by turning the camera of what is going on away from the cross and towards that inner place in the temple. It's like a different scene. It switches on our screens. And what we see there is a miracle taking place. The temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. This meant that it was completely ripped apart. Not just a a little tear at the bottom of it, but from top to bottom it was torn and it could not possibly have been done with human hands. The curtain was too thick. Uh, it 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 was high up. No one would have wanted to do it. No one could get in there. This was an absolute miracle. This was from God. He tore the temple at the moment Jesus died. 
And this was another intervention from creation that shows what the cross achieves. The tearing of the temple curtain shows us two related truths about what Jesus does on the cross. And the first thing is, as uh, I've said already, the death of Jesus on our behalf means we have access to the presence of God. We don't have to just uh, have a high priest take us in there. We can go ourselves into the very presence of God because the sacrifice for us has been made on the cross. The judgment's been taken by Christ. We can enter into the holy place. That's the first amazing truth. But the second thing is that Jesus' death on our behalf means that there is now no need for the physical temple and the religious rituals which would have brought access to God for those that were following that law. This means that our access to God solely depends upon the sacrifice of Jesus. You can't access God by your good works You can't access God by some religious ritual. You can't access God by some set words that you might pray. Access to God is only through faith in the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for our sins. I think sometimes even as Christians we think we can add something to make access to God um, a little bit easier or we might think, I can do something to make God like me a little bit more so I'll be more welcome into his presence. Some of us might think that God's really lucky to have us on his, in his kingdom because of how great we are. No. We can only get access to God and only stay there in the presence of God because of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for our sins. You can never tear the curtain. And neither do you need to, praise God, because he did it already. And brothers and sisters, this access is something we should be using. We should be praying to God, worshipping God in every area of our lives, in his presence. We've got access to so many things. But the greatest access we have is access to God. Well, the third supernatural phenomenon is the earthquake that opens the tombs. And in this, God is showing us that Jesus delivers a future with God. The temple curtain being torn happens at the same time as the death of Jesus. So too does the earthquake. And both are linked, if you notice, to the beginning of verse 51, where Matthew writes there, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then it says, the earth shook. So it's at the same time. The the curtain's being torn, and the earthquake happens. And the earthquake breaks open the tombs. Now, this might sound really weird, but it's actually not as unusual as it sounds, because when we think of tombs, We're thinking of bodies buried six feet under a pile of earth. But when Matthew's speaking of tombs, he's speaking of uh, like caves in rocks that are covered with stone, which do break sometimes when an earthquake happens. But what is unusual is that normally, even when those tombs do break open, the bodies remain where they are. 
Matthew tells us in verse 52 that the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Now that is strange. That doesn't normally happen when an earthquake happens. Now we're not told who these holy people are. Uh, We're not told what happened to them after they were raised to life, apart from they wandered around Jerusalem. I think uh, we can say that these were people who lived before Jesus. They weren't all the people of God who lived before Jesus, but a select number that were making a point. But it does show us how the people of God who lived before Jesus are also dependent on the cross of Christ, just like the people who live uh, for God after the cross of Christ. God's Old Testament people were looking forward to the cross. We look back to the cross. The cross is still the central event of salvation for all. But why does Matthew include this here? What is he, what is he saying? What is God uh, commentating on the cross of Christ with this earthquake that break opens the tombs? Well, what this is showing us is that the death of Jesus is breaking the curse of sin, death itself. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died for sinners, and so sinners will rise again. We have a future with God. But interestingly, verse 53 tells us that whilst the tombs were opened at the death of Jesus the actual resurrection of the bodies did not happen until after Jesus' resurrection. Now, I don't believe that they were kind of lying awake in the tombs, watching their clocks until Sunday arrived, thinking, come on. No, they rose from the dead after Jesus rose from the dead. And so the order of events goes like this. Jesus dies on the cross, and the holy people's tombs opened. Jesus' tomb opens on the Sunday, and he rises from the dead. And then the holy people are raised from their tombs. And then both Jesus and those holy people appear to various people in Jerusalem after Easter Sunday. The tombs opening here are like a foretaste of what is coming in just a few days' time. When I was a child, my mum always used to give me an Easter egg, just one, on Good Friday. I'd get the rest on Easter Sunday. The Good Friday egg was like a foretaste of what was coming in a couple of days' time. And I think something similar is going on here. The tomb's opening are a foretaste of what's coming. These bodies are going to raise. Because Jesus' death pays the penalty for sin, death is no longer a problem for us in the long term. If you like, we have a tomb, but the door isn't really shut. We're just waiting for resurrection day so we can come out again. Even though we may well die, and we will die unless Jesus returns first, we only go into a grave so that we can wait until we come out again and we're reunited with that body. The death of Jesus delivers a future with God because it pays for our sins. 
And just as these holy people rose from the grave and wandered around Jerusalem in their new bodies, so too will we be raised and wander around the new Jerusalem in our new bodies. And it's amazing to think, isn't it, that in the midst of utter despair, in the midst of seeming defeat, there is this foretaste, this Friday Easter egg, this foretaste of victory that is given. And there's a wonderful lesson there for us too. Because do you ever find yourself in a situation of despair? Do you ever find yourself feeling completely defeated or deflated? All of us, don't we find times in our lives when we face those kind of situations and we feel that way? But when we do face those times, whether it be in our health or the health of a loved one, whether it be that our children are going off the rails, whether it be a failure in sin or a darkness of depression, look at what happens to these holy people. And remember, Sunday is coming. You may feel like you're in a dark tomb, but for the Christian, It's a tomb with a door that's been smashed open, and there's a way out. And the cross shows us that God even uses the most awful and horrendous of circumstances, because no circumstance is as horrendous as the cross, is it? But God uses even those terrible circumstances to achieve the most incredible victories for his glory and the good of his people. Only God knows how he will do this in the situations that you and I face. But know this, Sunday is coming, and all of those situations are working for the good of his people and for his glory. What great hope we have because of the death of Jesus Christ. What wonderful achievements The cross has won for us. Hallelujah. What a saviour we have. Well, at the beginning, I mentioned the term pathetic fallacy, a technique that's used to shed light on what is happening using creation. And as God has done this, can you see what the director of this scene is trying to say? Well, in verse 54, we see that there was a Roman centurion and some of his soldier friends who saw these events and they got it. They understood what the director was trying to show. In verse 36 of this chapter, we saw that the soldiers had to keep watch over Jesus on the cross. At crucifixion victims had to be watched in case people came to try and take their bodies down from the cross. But the centurion and those with him, who would have seen many a crucifixion, had seen nothing like this one. They saw the earthquake and all that had happened, verse 54 says. This would have included the darkness. I mean, can you imagine standing there keeping watch and you're thinking, What time is it? I can hardly see what's going on. How am I supposed to keep watch? What is this darkness that's going on? 
They saw the darkness. They saw the way Jesus died with a loud voice, giving up his spirit. They saw the tombs opening as the earthquake shakes the earth. And it terrified them. And it would be terrifying, wouldn't it? Imagine being there. But in their terror, they recognized something about Jesus. Look at what they say at the end of verse 54. Surely he was the Son of God. Now they would have heard people mock Jesus and say, if you are the Son of God... They would have heard people say that coming down from the cross would show he is the Son of God. But these soldiers didn't listen to the mockery of the crowds. They read the commentary of the Father. And they read it right. They recognized who Jesus is. And what's amazing is that these people who declare Jesus to be the Son of God, they're not his disciples They're not Jewish people steeped in the Old Testament. They're the very Roman soldiers who are nailing him to the cross. And with this declaration, we see that they are welcomed in to the kingdom of God that he brings in through this death. These soldiers in Matthew's gospel joined the wise men, the centurion of chapter 8, the Canaanite woman of chapter 15, all outsiders who are welcomed in as they confess that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And what about you? Can you see it? Can you see what God is saying? Because if you don't accept and believe who Jesus is, these amazing truths that you can see on this screen behind me become terrifying. Because unless Jesus receives the judgment of God for you, you will receive this judgment from God and you'll be forsaken. Unless Jesus provides access to God, you'll be shut away from God forever. Unless Jesus delivers the future with God for you, you will not have a future with God, but you'll be paying for your sin forever in hell. That's your future. And so I urge you to join the multitudes from all nations like this centurion, like so many who are here tonight, to come to Jesus and be saved. Only he can pay the penalty for your sin. He loves you so much that he did this for you. Would you come? Would you come and receive Jesus Christ? And if you've done that, may looking at this cross again deliver you from being cold about these amazing, wondrous truths. Let's be amazed at what Christ has done for us. Well, our final song is a a wonderful response Uh, to these awesome events that we've been reading about. Our final song is The Power of the Cross. Uh, Through the voice of creation, we've seen that power. And our final song speaks of it and how this means that we can be part of God's kingdom because of his death for us on the cross.
He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Praise God. Amen.